Today's reading comes from Acts, the 18th chapter, 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave of his brother, of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left, left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God's will. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And he went down to Anak. After spending some time, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in his scriptures. He has been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He spoke and talked accurately the thing concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the Baptist of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when, he, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to what is that? Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Rose. Let me pray for us, guys. Actually, stay standing, please. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for uh, salvation you've given us in your name. We thank you for the Holy Spirit being the down payment, being the sanctifier, the birth giver. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your holy word uh, being a great instruction for us to navigate uh, in, in your world. Uh, to be your people and how that, what that looks like, Lord. And we pray for humility right now that you would guide us, that your Holy Spirit would fill us and we would be uh, just learning from you, Jesus. Um, pray for your guidance in my own life, that you would allow me to express what you have for your people. Uh, pray for a great stewardship there, Jesus, by your grace. We know that apart from you guiding and doing your work in me, in this body, all this is for nothing. So we don't want to be in the flesh. We don't want this to be about anyone but you. So we pray for that. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, fam. Um, we are obviously in the end of chapter 18 of the book of Acts, going through um, 
the book of Acts. And we've been in it for about a year now. You see Pastor Leon is passing out Bibles for you guys as we navigate through the chapters. So please feel free to grab one of those. That would be helpful. Um, Say this every week, but hopefully, you know, just for us to understand uh, some things. Uh, First, please feel free to ask um, uh, questions if if you feel like they'll encourage the body. Also, as a local community, we're committed to going through books of the Bible. That's what we do. Uh, And so we'll be in this for some time. Uh, Hopefully you've been encouraged. Hope you'll continue to be encouraged. Um, There's been a lot going on. I want to ask you to go to uh, the MAC website to uh, hear the past sermons and hopefully catch up if you're new to the game. Uh, We are so uh, thankful that you're here. Uh, A lot is going on. We've seen uh, in this book, uh, because we have so much to talk about right now, I just want to give us a uh, catch us up real quick and and get moving on. There's a lot going on in in chapter 18, at the end of chapter 18. um, We've seen uh, this book be written to uh, a a powerful leader, Theophilus, uh, by Luke. Uh, We've seen the canon be one, Luke and Acts, and then they separated in antiquity into two. Uh, and basically we saw the, the rising of Jesus, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and all that be kind of um, mirrored together toward the end of Luke's and the beginning of Acts. We see Jesus um, rise from the dead. Uh, the disciples get excited because now they've been birthed with new life in the sense of like, oh my goodness, this is real. He's a conqueror. Jesus gives them instructions on what does it mean to be like to be on mission. He fills them with the spirit. We see awesome things happen in the church. We see basically these people begin to formulate what does it mean to be the new people of God. Uh, so they enter a huge transition. Okay. Then it continue on in that transition as they begin to see God deal with sin within the covenant community. They begin to deal with transition as they begin to see persecution enter the covenant community as they're proclaiming their faith. Uh, they begin to see transition when they see the very same people who are basically murdering Christians, becoming Christians, talking about Saul who becomes Paul and becomes basically one of the greatest missionaries in all time and also probably the greatest theologian in the New Testament, writing almost 13 books. Um, And so we're seeing all this transition. We begin to see Paul, who wants to proclaim the gospel because God already told him this gospel is going to not just stay within the confines of the Jews, but it's going to go out to the whole world. Uh, We begin to see that happen through the Jews and also through Paul's ministry as he begins to take these missionary journeys. Now, the last month or so, we've seen uh, the Lord use Paul in doing his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, which is what we've gone through for the last couple weeks. And now we're hitting toward the last part of the second missionary journey and the beginning of the third missionary journey. And so as I looked at Acts, I tried to really convince you guys last week that uh, chapter 18, we've seen Paul get beat up. We've seen him be thrown in prison. We've seen him be whipped. Uh, we've seen him be in chains. We've seen him uh, be ostracized and, and, and disparaged every time. Basically, he's went to a different synagogue in a different city, Right. And so basically we see this guy, I propose to you that chapter 18 is trying to provide a sense of rest and transition, right? Because we've seen basically Paul hustling uh, for for 17 chapters, okay? And so right now I want to propose again that what's going on is is there's a sense of transition that God is bringing about. And I want to talk about transition today, guys, because I, I think that's the main push. I was like, what is, what is the Holy Spirit doing as we look at this, the ending of the chapter? What is he trying to say to his people? And I propose transition. Transition is so important, right? When you think of transition in life, um, it seems to me, you know, some of us don't like change, right? Right? So how many of you guys don't like change, really struggle with change, right? Right? Yeah, I'm kind of that guy a little bit, right? I like, I like my, my, my rigidity, like my regimen. 
And what I'm realizing at 38, though, although we all have that disposition at some level, some of us do more than others, to really navigate well in life, um, you have to kind of learn how to deal with change. All right? I mean, you think about it in May. Uh, <laughs> I saw Chris go, uh-oh. Uh, you, you know, to think about it, to deal with marriage. I mean, you know, I tell, I tell unbelievers all the time, you know, I have unbelievers who want us to marry them and stuff. And I'll tell them, well, you know, I'm not going to marry you, but I'll tell you this much. If you want to have a good marriage, you need to follow Christian principles, right? And so when you get, you talk about having a marriage. What I've seen as I've counseled people, people who really struggle and have really, really bad marriages is when you have the woman or the guy, one of them just not willing to experience that sanctification, not experience that sense of like, I'm changing and I'm willing to change in a sense of deference for you. And in the other person, best marriages is when one person says, I'm willing to change. Okay, this is how I like things, but because I love you more than I like what I like, <laughs> I'm willing to change a little more for you. And then the other person says, either, whether you do that or not, it's irrelevant. I love you enough that I'm willing to change for you. When you get two people who are modeling that consistent deference, that sense of like, I know who I am, but now I'm trying to figure out what is it like for us to be one to get a good marriage. When you don't have that, what I've seen in my journey of counseling people for a while now, almost a couple of decades, it's a hard go. Um, think about it with kids, right? So you, you, you're a single person, right? You're, you're selfish because we're in America. That's, that's, hey, let's just keep it real. When I was, you're selfish and we're all selfish, but you get to be selfish because it's just you, all right? You get married, for example, that's, a, that's another tier of sanctification, Right now, again, some people want to still be selfish, and that's that's when you get bad marriages. You get the homie who married, and he still think he's single. You ever met that dude? Right? <laughs> I've had to counsel those dudes. Hard counseling session to help the brother understand. Actually, you married now. You got to share that pie. Right? You can't just go out and basketball all night because you that's what you used to do. You know what I'm saying? So when you get when you get a person though who says, "Oh, get married," all of a sudden you're like, "Oh my goodness, wow." I'm learning that there is a selfishness here and I got to defer and give to others, right? You think, man, this is crazy. So when you get married, you think, oh my goodness, God is really doing a work in me. I'm being sanctified, right? And then you have a kid. I'm just, you know, people told me this when I was seeing, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm telling you, it's true. I wish I would listen. You have a kid, right? And then there's a whole nother level of, wow, I'm really selfish. And my life really isn't my own. Right. And so the best daddies and mommies, in my opinion, are people who can look outside themselves and care about others more than themselves. Transition. You know, you go one way and all of a sudden there's something that pops into your life where you got to choose. What are you going to do? Are you going to stay the same or are you going to move forward? Right. Cultural transition. Even you look at our body. Praise the Lord. We have different people in our body. We have, you know, Asians with Certain cultural distinctives, you know, Koreans have certain cultures, Chinese Americans have certain cultures, African Americans, certain cultures, you got white folks in our body have certain cultures, right? And how, how do you really, what does it look like? How do you gather together and actually have intimacy and relationship, right? If, if we're not all willing to enter into some sense of transition, is that fair? If we're not all willing to give and take and say, I want to learn, I want to grow, I'm not going to place this in an idol, my, my culture or whatever, but I'm going to understand who I am, 
but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on this journey. And I'm going to become a little different, more like Jesus, hopefully. Well, guys, chapter 18, or I would dare say the book of Acts, uh, in a nutshell, is a book of transition. And I think chapter 18 is a great time to discuss this because I really see God really showing us uh, this sense of transition. Let me just go through real quick to just remind us a little bit about what you're reading when you're talking about the book of Acts. And this is very important. It's going to be a little academic, but I need to do this because I want us to understand this so you're not messing up other books of the Bible. Okay? You can pop it up here. Okay, so Acts. The reason why this is a transition book, as it were, and the reason why this is a very hard book to find theology is because it actually is a New Testament, right, uh, historical book. That's basically modeling to you in history a church that's in process, right? It's a church that's forming, and as it's forming, its theology is forming, okay? And its demonstration of theology is forming. Now, that's very different, right, than the book of Hebrews, which is an epistle describing and telling you doctrine that has been formed. Huge difference, right? So Acts is a look into history, letting you understand what happened as far as making these new people of God. How do you move people from a Jewish faith to a Christian faith? See, we forget about that because we're not Jews. But you got to keep in mind, transition, you talk about transition. What do, you, what do you think about being a Jewish person and then Jesus comes on the scene and says, you a Jewish Christian? What do you think about that? Think about it. It was difficult not only because of the, the strength of Judaism, right? When you think of the strength of Judaism, I mean, Judaism for us, we think, we automatically think of a Jew and you think what? Religion, right? You think Judaism. But Jewish people, they saw it was a pride thing. It was a culture. It was a race. I mean, it wasn't just religion. This is who they are. This is, this is the bedrock of who they are, right? And so now you're trying to tell them, okay, this is who you are. You got the strength of Judaism, but then you also, you're, you're transitioning into a place, Christianity, that is actually forming. Okay? So you're not, it's like for us now, we become a Christian and there's all this, these Bibles, there's doctrine, there's all this stuff kind of solidified for us. They're being placed into an environment where the, the historical Jesus and what he said and who he is, is, is still kind of, we're still trying to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. How does, how, you know, how is Judaism embracing and celebrate Christianity and how is it at odds? All these things are happening in time and space while they're trying to be faithful to Messiah Jesus, right? This is what's happening in the book of Acts. So they're trying to figure out things. Well, what do you substitute? What's been fulfilled? I mean, we have all, we have the, the, the joy of having our books and stuff. We go, oh, so that, that was fulfilled in the Old Testament, you know, by Jesus. This was a, he was a substitutionary atonement in this way. This is, this is happening to them in time, in space, okay? Just want us to have a humility about how hard this would be. All right. So the, the historical theology was forming. And some people, as we look in the book of Acts, when you read the book of Acts, you'll see some people adopting better than others. They're, they're adapting and figuring it out where other people are really struggling. Right, we looked at Peter, understanding his bigotry. Right, that was a Jewish thing. He was kind of struggling with this big change. 
For heaven's sake, when you go to Acts 2, and we, we read Acts 2 and we talk about, you know, the, the, the people got together and they fellowship in the apostles' doctrine and they, they broke bread and all this, right? And then, and then it tells you, what, in the next chapter, then they went to synagogue. Well, wait a minute, I thought we was, we had, we was having church. But you're still going to synagogue. Why do you think that was happening? Because they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. Like, well, do we still go to synagogue or do we have church? What are we supposed to be doing? So they did both. Right? So we missed that. I mean, think about it. When, you, when you're reading the, the New Testament epistles, many times it talks about individuals. Even Apollos that we read today, he starts a house church. But yet they were going to synagogue. Right? It was hard. The main reason this is important, one of the main reasons, because what, what we have to do is when you're reading the book of Acts, I want us to see that you can't just say, oh, it happened in Acts, there ago, you have theology. You can't do that. Because right now, things are in process, guys. So we're going to hit some verses here, and I want to make sure we got this clear. And this is why, even though you know I talk about us not throwing a baby out with the bathwater when we're talking about the charismatic movement. Okay, I think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn and that the charismatic movement offers us into the sense of just being having a heart of faith. I think I think that's great. I think we need to learn uh, being able to experience God supernaturally, being open to the spiritual realm. But the one one of the critiques I have of the charismatic movement is they view the book of Acts as a doctrinal book, a book of theology. Okay, and you can't do that. You got to see some theology. But you've got to understand, it's a book that's telling you about the history of the church and how it's formed. That makes sense, guys? Okay. So even as we look at, we've seen in the past, we see the Jews, our last verses last week, they're hiding under the auspices of being a Jew for protection, but they're also hiding because it was comfortable. Because that's what they knew. So with that in mind, understanding that transition, understanding that's what they're going through, let's enter into the ending of chapter 18, starting at verse 18, okay? Uh, It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila, all right? And at Syncre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. <clears throat> so what it looks like is that God is going to be doing some things, you know, tying up some loose ends in chapter 18. We see right now uh, uh, Galileo's decision in the last chapter was probably, which, which I love, by the way, this is more of a, theo- um, a nerdy point. When you see mention of historical figures like that, I love that because what it does, it validates the historicity of our scriptures. Because keep in mind, the unbeliever wants to invalidate Christianity. And so if they could find out that there's a name who's made up or something in the Bible, they'll go see, you know, who is Kermit, right? Right. And they'll say, Christianity's not real because there's no Kermit in AD 3, you know. But they don't do that. So what, what I love what Jesus does is he inspires writers all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New. He'll, just, he'll, he'll give you all this stuff because you got to keep in mind, like Old Testament, for example, or some of these places are happening during different time periods, Mesopotamia and all this stuff. You're having these things happen at the same time, you know, Alex, um, Alexander the Great. And, and so Christianity is happening while history is happening because Christianity is in history. 
So every once in a while, what Jesus will do, he'll throw, I think, the unbeliever and even us, because we need some time, to, we need faith some time to go, I don't know if this is crazy, Lord, is this really real? He'll throw us a bone and say, all right, man, remember Galileo? He was around. Okay? And so then you see this guy, and then what the unbeliever does is they'll look and they'll search and go, okay, was that true? Yeah, okay, he was alive. Okay, and what happened during that time? And they'll find and see that some of the things that are mentioned in the scriptures, they see that actually in antiquity, and then it validates our actually historicity of the scriptures. That makes sense? And that's why when you're arguing people about, about Jesus, you don't have to argue the historicity of the scriptures. You, and there's, some, there's some facts and points you have to argue, but really the issue is, did he rise from the dead? Right? The unbeliever is not tripping on that Jesus was he is a historical figure. Okay? So I wanted to say what the historians did, when you see this guy here, is they're able to pinpoint and know exactly around the time frame. They would say this is around 51 AD. Uh, and they, and they, they don't, they, they're wondering if it was in the early fall or the winter time when this, is, when this happened. Because uh, that's when Galileo's decision was to kind of like protect the Jews. Okay? So after that, <clears throat> what Paul does is he leaves Corinth. Uh, which we saw last week, and he actually goes, goes to Syria and Judea with Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, and it talks about this whole thing, him cutting his hair, okay? So why is it talking about um, him cutting his hair, okay? All right, so have you guys heard of, which, by the way, speaks to my issue of process again? Because why would you do this? Well, he did this because he was a Jew, all right, so what are you trying to do? Have you heard of the Nazarite vow? The Nazarite vow? The Nazarite vow? Okay, the Nazarite vow is a vow that they took back in the day. Uh, this is what you see um, when individuals wouldn't cut their hair. Uh, this was John the Baptist, um, had a Nazarite vow for his old life. Uh, this was Samson, when you read that, that great story. You know, see guys, I see you like, oh, yeah, so that's Samson, right? So that's what was going on there, right? Uh, the Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarite vow is not the same as being a Nazarene. Okay, they're totally different. So maybe you thought that, but you didn't want to come public. So Nazarene is from Nazareth, right? So Jesus was from Nazareth. He's a Nazarene. That doesn't mean he had a Nazarite vow, okay? Because you can have a Nazarite vow, but still not be from Nazareth because you're not a Nazarene, all right? So, all right, so what this is, basically the the vow, um, what what you were saying is they were, it it was an issue of consecration. Okay, now this is really important. Now watch this. There's an issue of consecration. What they would do is an individual would say, man, I want to show God has done something really cool in my life, and I'm so excited about that. And so what I want to do in response to his goodness, I want to consecrate myself in a serious way for, and it could be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, you name it. So they would consecrate themselves uh, fully unto the Lord. And one day they would do that, they would cut their hair. And the reason why they would do that is so that individual would see them around I'm sorry, they would, they would let their hair grow, I'm sorry. And so when people would see them around, they would know, I wonder if they're taking that vow so then the other Jews wouldn't tempt him for food and things of that sort. Okay, because they, couldn't, they wouldn't drink wine and there was these different kind of rules that they had as a Nazarite vow. The whole point is, it was an issue of devotion. Okay, it's an issue of devotion where, where Paul, for whatever reason, I'll give you what I propose as the reason, which speaks to my issue of him rest again, um, desire and rest from last week. So whatever reason it was, Paul was saying, man, I consecrated myself to Jesus because I'm so encouraged by what God did in my life and, and through me and, and in people that I wanted to say, God, thank you for who you are. So what is he, why is he doing this? 
Well, he had just come from Corinth. So I want to propose to you that he made the vow in Corinth. Okay? Well, why? Again, I want to propose to you because what we talked about last week. I want to propose to you that had he seen God do cool things, right? Had God done something awesome, what had God done? God had delivered him where he could have died. God put him into a place where all of a sudden he's not running around crazy. He's able to sit down and relax a little bit, right? He's able to disciple some people. He's able to make some tents. And I'm proposing to you because God was gracious to allow him to bring life down a little bit and to actually build some friendships and to be able to establish ministry and establish some friendships and be there for a year and a half and see people get discipled. And I must say, he took Priscilla and Aquila with him, which means that there are other leaders there because as we know Paul's testimony, he's not going to leave a body of people if they can't be discipled. So what does that mean? I'm proposing that Paul and them had raised up other leaders in that year and a half. It could have been Sosthenes or some other individuals that we see in the book of Romans. But I'm proposing that what that shows you is Paul was there a year and a half. He raised up other leaders. These guys are walking and experiencing Christ. And he's so amazed. He's after a year and a half. People have come to faith. I got leaders in the church. They can take care of things. I'm taking Priscilla and Aquila with me. God, you have been so good to give me some rest. I didn't have perspective. I came down. I was beat down. I had these whips on me. I was tired. I had no friendship. You had, I was trying to preach the faith and these people would dog me in the synagogue. I was beat down and God said, hey, calm down. I am with you. And I think that ministered so deeply to Paul that he took a vow and said, I just want to bless your name, Jesus. And so he cuts his hair during this time. But you might say, well, Eric, well, well what about, you know, you don't have to do this. What about... Um, you know, the gospel, you don't have to take a vow anymore. That's my point. Isn't that weird that, that, that Paul took a vow? He had already written a few books of the Bible, by the way. So he's, he had good doctrine. I want to propose that he was in process. That he was still trying to figure out, right, how to do Jewish stuff and Christian stuff. He was still in process, now, what a, now how, do we, how do you say, well, man, I'm not a Jew. How do I take that today and, and apply that to my life? I think it's a beautiful picture of sanctification. I think it's a beautiful picture. See, here's the thing. I was talking with one of my dear friends this week. In evangelical America, we, we kind of have, I think we've convoluted sanctification. Here's what I mean. We have put a pressure on people. Now, now I say this first. Let me, let me get a caveat. You know I'm serious about holiness. You know I'm serious about godliness. People being look, looking more like Jesus Christ because he's our all in all. But guess what? You know what I also realize? If I keep it real, if I keep it 100, right? A person, you give me a greedy, selfish, gossipy Christian, uh, unbeliever, and he gets saved, guess what he becomes? A greedy, selfish, gossipy Christian. That's what usually happens. Is that fair? Can we be Christians in here for a moment? You don't get saved and all of a sudden you don't do nothing wrong. Right? All of a sudden you, you just now, you, all, your, all your vices just end. Now, don't, now, well, you're not giving the power of the Holy Spirit. God, is there, there's testimonies where God will just supernaturally say, boom, you was a drunk on Monday, Tuesday, you'll never you drink again. There's testimonies like that and I believe that. What I want to propose to you, if we keep it real, is not normal. What's normal is a brother like me who gets saved in college, starts doing Christian ministry. I'm a leader in campus to for Christ. And then after being a leader toward the end of the school year, a guy says something smart to me in a Kroger and I beat him to a pulp in the back of Kroger as a leader in Jesus. 
Am I, am I, am I encouraging that? Absolutely not. Okay. But when I did that, I remember going home, hand all big, because hitting this dude, and it was one of the first times I tell this testimony where God was like, I felt bad. I want to go find a dude and apologize and all this stuff. And then the Holy Spirit almost spoke to me. It was like, Eric, I get it. You, you, you're sad. You're crying. But, no, but notice something. You beat him up, but you can't beat people up the way you used to beat them up. Because right now, you're feeling bad. It was one of the first times where clearly in my mind, I thought, wow, this is called godly sorrow. I feel bad about beating this dude up. I tell us that because here's what happens. Here's how Satan uses and tries to trick us. We, get, we, we hear the gospel message. We get excited. We think, he's our savior. Okay, God does it in me. I can now give myself to him, but I'm weak. I got this porn addiction. I got this issue. I'm, I'm angry. I'm, I'm grumpy and all this stuff. Can God work this out in me? And we go, yeah, 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 God, the gospel's awesome. And then we go, and then you come to faith and you, you say, okay, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to be in Bible study. And then in a couple of weeks, we go, why ain't you changing? And now, Satan starts going, see, you're not serious. Look at you. You're still the same cat you used to be. And then we start believing and going, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. Right? Versus believing and trusting the gospel and Jesus' sanctification in our life, we start putting a time stamp on stuff saying, if you ain't like this by this date, then I don't know if you're serious. And I'm just proposing to you, and I'm very serious about sanctification, but I don't know if that's the Christian model. I don't know if I see a lot of that. I see a lot of long-suffering, a lot of deference in Paul's ministry and his epistles. In fact, it took him to 2 Corinthians to tell a church that was doing all kind of crazy stuff to say, finally, would you look and see if you're a Christian? It took him years to go there. He was affirming him the whole time. So my point there is I think this does matter, guys, is that when we're in transitioning and process, you got a dude who, who's the greatest theologian. He's walking, he's trying to, he's walking with the Lord and he's still dabbing in some Judaism and he does a Christian thing. Peter, a leader in the church, he's the leader in the church and he still can't even celebrate other people that don't look like him. Was he a Christian? Absolutely. Is he in process? Absolutely. There's something about the freedom when you're okay and people know and you feel like I can be in process. That's why I love marriage. Man, how shackling it would be if I went to Sarah and she said, you got three weeks, bruh. <laughs> right? You got three weeks. I'm tired of this. That would shackle me. Would it shackle you if your sanctification had a timestamp versus knowing you have a wife or a husband that's committed to you no matter how jacked up you are or how jacked up you will be? See, that actually motivates me to actually become more like Christ, actually. To see my wife say, I know you jacked up. I know you messed that up again, but I'm here. And I think you're hot stuff. You're awesome. That makes me go, man, my wife thinks I'm awesome. Wow, that's so cool. Like, man, what's wrong? It makes me want to be the man that God wants me to be for her. Because of her commitment. To me, that seems a little bit more like what Christ tells us. I got this. You keep trusting me, I'll keep sanctifying you. That seems to me to be it. So, um, I, I, I say that to you, go, why are you going off about this? Because for some reason, the author saw it was a focus. Why does he see it was a focus? Because he went to Sincre, 
All right, and, and, and Romans 16 tells us that they planted a church there. So, I mean, people got saved, and a church was raised up in that place in Sincre. Now, look at that verse. A church was raised up there. You go to Romans 16, you'll see that, right? But guess what they only talk about in Sincre? They only talk about Paul getting a haircut. What's up with that? Go through your epistles. It, the only thing you hear about the church in that area is that Paul got a trim right here. Right? He got a fade. So to me, I want to propose to you, I, the author wanted us to see that and go, why, why, would he do, why is that most important to the author? And I'm proposing he wants us to see the goodness of God. He wants to go, because Paul was like, man, I was jacked up. And, and God just paused me and said, relax, I got this. Look what God did in his life. He wants you to see God's power, that Christ is faithful, that he has you. He has you in process, and he's going to sanctify you, and he's got you, and you can be okay with that. I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. So, he makes this vow out of gratitude. And then the scriptures say, which, by the way, which is kind of bizarre, he had to, he had to keep his hair. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, Nate. He was ending about, I'm sorry. He was ending about a vow was made for him to let his hair grow. He cut his hair because he was ending a vow. And actually, uh, in, in antiquity, he had to actually take the hair and keep it. So I don't know what Paul was doing at this point. He's walking around with a bunch of hair in his hand or something. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But it says in verse, thanks, Nate, in verse 19, so in process. So think about that, guys. Think about that as a, as a local body, okay? In process. Think about your own journey and being in process, all right? Because here's a guy who's vacillating. I'm proposing that's Okay. Am I wanting you to be more like Jesus? Absolutely. Am I wanting you to grow? Absolutely. Do I, do I, I, don't, I don't think I have a low standard of holiness, but I am, I am growing in my understanding of God's grace. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he goes back. He goes, they go to Ephesus. Uh, it was the greatest city at the time. Asia Minor is a big time. Paul, um, Priscilla and Aquila, it was a tent-making ministry, so they can go anywhere and kind of have this business, so they move again, which is so cool to see these guys who got a job, and yet they are just on fire for Jesus. You don't even know who the pastor is, you know? They're just out here with Paul, preaching the gospel, doing their thing, which is really cool. Uh, this place had political importance. It was, uh, they had geographical importance. Uh, usually when they would decide big things in the Asia Minor area, they would do it in Ephesus. So this is a very strategic place uh, for the gospel to be proclaimed. And it had a large settlement of Jews. Uh, you can, you'll see that if you guys want to do some, some really fun reading. Uh, not really. Josephus and his antiquities is super boring, but it's a lot of good stuff on the historicity of what was going on in the first century. Um, so they go there, they pay a visit, and it, and uh, it says in verse 20, uh, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Um, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you of God's will. And he set sail for, for, uh, from Ephesus, which is so interesting, right? You think of all the history of Paul. People are always actually begging him to leave. This is like the first time where people are actually begging him to stay. Have you noticed that? And what's interesting to me, the one time they begged him to stay, he said, nope, I'm leaving. So... But the reason why I want to propose he can go is because he has leaders. Um, he has leaders who are, who are taking uh, the gauntlet and they are moving forward uh, in faith, which I want to propose to you. If you notice in our last month, maybe, haven't you seen this huge framework of discipleship and how it matters? And I mean, you, don't, you just, it's just, it's just intuitive, right? 
You see him fighting to be in the same place again. I mean, think of his missionary journeys. Don't forget this, guys. So you think of it. Oh, well, when Paul did his missionary journeys, he went here, he went here, and he went here. Well, not really. You know what he did? First missionary journey, he went here. Second missionary journey, he went here. (laughs) You notice he went to the same places again, again, and again. What does that say to you? Relationships, discipleship, training, making sure the saints are okay. Why? Because we're convinced of this. This is our ministry model. We realize that our role as your pastors is not to just be out here sharing our faith. We share our faith because we street like that. And that's what we want to be because God has called us to be part of the, the body, right? But our role as your pastors is to equip you to do the ministry. So people always, you know, it's so funny how people come in here, and they're like, hey, so when are you going to do whatever you need to do to get more people in here? And I'm thinking, no, that's your job. That's your job. I equip you, you go tell the faith, right? May I say it again? We go tell the faith, praise the Lord. We'll do ours, but you do yours. And Paul got that. So he equipped the saints so they could do the ministry. And that's why he could leave cats. Right, he can leave places and say, no, I, I ain't staying. Y'all, you know what to do. Share your faith. Okay? It says, uh, he goes on. Uh, what's he in a hurry for? Uh, theologians don't really know. They would say maybe because um, basically he had to go up for a feast. Because we see in verse 22, when he uh, had landed in Caesarea, um, it says, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Whenever you see this up and down language like this, basically the church is Jerusalem. So he goes up, pays a visit to the mother church, to the leaders, to the crew. Hey, what's going on? Hey, let me tell you what happened. He also probably takes his hair. Because what you do, you take it to uh, Jerusalem. And then you, if you uh, ended a vow and you would burn it uh, in Jerusalem. So you're thinking, well, Paul wasn't like super. Well, no, this dude was still burning his hair, carrying it around. This dude was still going through his Jewish lamentation. Okay? You know that when you've got your hair in your hand. All right? So he goes up there. He probably burns his hair. Uh, He also probably greets the church. And then it says in verse 23, After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and uh, and Phrygia, strengthening all his disciples. Now, I forgot to show you guys the map, but I'm so excited. You You see that now, guys? You see, it got good. Look at that. You see that big old red dot? I, I, I forgot to show you the map, but I still wanted to show you the dot because I think that's really cool that I now got the dot. So that has nothing to do with the text, but I just thought it was really cool that I got that dot. So let's go back to verse 23. So he goes and he's spending time and he's, he's going through the region and he's equipping the very same people he shared his faith with, right? That he's done life with. And it's in verse 23 where we would say, like, basically his third missionary journey starts, um, where he starts actually in Antioch, uh, and then he kind of goes to Derby and Lystria. Can we go there? Can we get to that one? So we, um, where are we at here in Antioch? Where is that? Here we go. So it says, you know, he starts in Antioch and he comes to Derby. See that, guys? So this is where he's flowing now. Going to some of the same places again. Now you go, well, man, he's traveling again. He's doing, he's hustling again. Yeah, but after a year and a half break, right? He spent some time getting himself refreshed, getting himself right, in his doctrine together, sending out a few letters. Now he's back in the game, right? 
third journey starts, he goes back three times to cast vision to these groups about who they are and graft them into the Lord. What does this say about discipleship? God, do you understand this is why we are convinced about our model of discipleship? And again, we, we're still always trying to tweak our method, and you guys can help us. That'd be cool. We want it to be the best method that can give you, that can give you Christ. But we are convinced of a couple of things that God has asked us to pour into other people. And he's asked us to equip leaders so that they might equip leaders. We're convinced of that. And that's why we do what we do. And that's why we ask you to say, hey, man, like, we want you to pour into somebody. We want you to, to disciple somebody, to, to allow somebody to be under you or side by side because our, our discipleship is all over the place where we're just doing life together. We're getting in the word. We're learning how to walk by faith. We're learning how to communicate our faith. And we're learning how to multiply our faith. And we, we are passionate for our local body to be as convinced of that theologically as we are as your leaders. So that when you, so, so when it, so when it, when it becomes hard, because here's what happens when you don't have a conviction, a theological conviction, and it's still just an opinion or a rented vision. Soon as life gets crazy, guess what removes out of your list? It's that issue, whatever that thing is. Okay. See, if you're in college and life gets crazy, Elijah, do you stop going to class? No, because you will flunk out. Right? It's real simple. You still go to class. Why? Because you're convinced I need to go to class to get my degree. What we want for us is for us to see, not in a sense of works, discipleship as a job, but in a sense of duty and obedience as discipleship as a job. Is that no, that's what we do. That's what I do. So, so I look at my family. My wife has five kids. We go, now I get it. A little easier for me. I get paid for it. Get that. But I am asking you to consider, hey, okay, here's our day. Here's our family. We all need to be disciples, at least two people. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do two people. So what, what does the rest of my life look like? Because that's what we do. We're called to pour our lives in others. See, that's hard. It's difficult. I understand the flow in our body. But guys, I, 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 I feel like I'd be unfaithful to not stand firm with that vision. For us to look at our life and say, I, I I'm convinced of the vision, so I figure out how it works. But does that mean I got to give an hour and a half this week and then an hour and a half in a week, and, uh, week from now? Or to really think through it, but man, to ask, to ask our body, our beautiful men and women in this body who I just adore, to say, man, I want you. I want to see Tamara pouring into some lady and spending an hour and a half a week or bi-weekly just doing gospel. I want to see Missy caring for someone and saying, hey, let's do life. Let's, let's talk about Jesus. Let's learn how to share our faith for an hour and a half. Guys, I just don't think that's, I don't think that's a lot of time to ask. I think that's fair. I think it's hard. I think you've got to look at your schedule. I think you've got to do, you got to do some priority, some priority listing, some inventory checking, right? Right? But guys, I don't, I don't, I don't think asking three hours out of discipleship, now that's not fair. You've got to plan and stuff. So five hours out of discipleship every other week or every week. I think we can do that, guys. And I think the benefits outweigh the costs. To see men and women in our community being cared for, trained up, and equipped to do the ministry, I think it's worth it. Third journey starts. He's discipling cats. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of uh, Alexandria, came to Ephesus. It says he was an eloquent man. Competent in scriptures. You can circle those eloquent, competent in scriptures and have been instructed. 
right, in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. A couple of things, men in the, men in the house, and women too for sure, but the brothers, you know I'm always hard on the brothers. You should look at this guy and say, this guy, I want to be like this guy. Can you say in your life, you are competent in scriptures, you know, instructing the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, and when you teach, it's accurate. Love that. Brother ain't even had the whole gospel. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I love, I love that he, he, he taught what he knew, though. You know what I'm saying? And you know we all got that testimony, right? You first come to Christ. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I, I think I had two major verses I would talk about. And I remember this one dude, would, people would come and ask me questions. And I was a young student. And they would know, tell me, ask me questions. And I didn't know nothing. Missing. You know what I'm saying? I'd say, look, you keep your eye on Jesus. <laughs> that was my go-to phrase. I don't know what I'm about to tell you, but keep your... They'd be like, man, that was deep. I'm like... <laughs> keep your eye. So, um, what's interesting here, he was raised outside of Paul's influence. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that encourage you? You know how you, you get something going, and then without you having to start it, someone from outside that sphere of influence start talking about it? You'd be like, oh, sweet, that's what's up. Because this dude come out of somewhere, Alexandria, and he tight. He's like, I'm, and, and guess what? He's a minister of the gospel. Like, this dude ain't no tent maker. This dude preaching the gospel. He think he's Paul. Right? This dude think he's Paul up in here. Preaching the gospel unapologetically. And I love that the, I love that the, the patriarchs don't get offended. I love, that, I love the fact of Christian community here. No one's hating. And guess what? He has bad doctrine. He ain't even talking about Jesus being a risen Messiah. Because he doesn't know that yet. Because he's still talking about John's gospel. What is John talking about? John's talking about someone who's going to come, right? He's coming, and Jesus is already here. But they don't hate. I think, you know, the implication, man, I, and I, I don't want to spend long on this, and I don't understand the situation at all, but I wish we would have handled the Mark Driscoll issue better as a Christian community. I think even when we do something foul, whatever we do, even you catch me doing something foul, whatever, man, there's a way about us keeping holiness in the camp and making sure that, man, we don't just, just put our brothers and sisters out here and crucify them. I'm just, keep, I'm just trying to be 100. And I don't know the whole situation. I'm not acting like I know. That's my point. I don't know. So why am I crucifying this brother? But... um. I love this. I love that they come here. He's talking the baptism of John. So I'm proposing to you that he's a sold out Old Testament G who's not a Christian yet. And we talked about that. You might go, well, what do you mean not a Christian yet? Remember, we talked about that uh, many, many weeks ago where I gave an example of how when Jesus born of the spirit. And we, we had a scenario like this earlier uh, with Paul and people of that sort. Because of time, I'm going to have to chill. Um, I'm going to have to keep rolling. But, and we can talk about that later, and you can argue about that in your mad group too, that'd be great. Um, but, he, but he's a Jew, he, uh, he grows up, again, in his, in his Judaism, so he's raised up in Alexandria, a big city, but he's, but he's caught up in Judaism, right? Great Jewish population, and it says he's eloquent, it means a man uh, is fluent, a man has a, he's a great orator, right? Uh, mighty in scripture, uh, means he has a great biblical foundation. In fact, think about Apollos' testimony. Right in First Corinthians three, um, verse six and four. You know, you know, he talks about in verse in verse um, in verse six. 
Let me just give you. This is, this is my brother's testimony. In verse 6 of chapter 3, you write the address down. It says, um, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And he's talking about people are trying. Paul has such an influence that people are trying to follow him like he was Jesus. And Paul has to rebuke them for that in, in 1 Corinthians. And then you get to verse 6 of chapter 4, and it says, um, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, uh, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of, of one against another. And so I just love, this brother got so much clout that you got one of the greatest theologians ever putting him in the same sentence with him and talking about, hey, we, here's how we are doing things, do things like us. This is the kind of, this is how God had given this brother the grace he had given him uh, to proclaim the gospel. And this is a guy who didn't even have all the gospel back then. All right. So what I love about this, just real quick, I love that he says, he preaches the gospel, and in verse 26 it says, um, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Love this. All right. So first of all, he's taught in the way of the Lord, talking about that's the word we get catechism from. So he's trained up, preaches the gospel, and he's not telling people that Jesus is the way. Okay. Right. He's not saying right, by grace through faith. And they don't dog him. Now, I'm guilty of this, and I think some of us have to really pursue, think about this, how quickly we are so ready to find some, something wrong with someone's doctrine. And then we just pounce on them. And what I love here is, I don't know what would have happened if he wouldn't have been receptive, but I love that they believe the best and say, let me just tell you what's true and see what you, how you respond. And it seems, because there's no drama, that he was like, well, man, thanks. I didn't know that. I appreciate that. Now, guess what? And then it came to him like, ha, ah, look at that dude. <laughs> what are you talking about? Or raise a hand. What do you mean? And just like dog him and put him on blast. I don't know how that would have went. But I think it's really cool that they believe in the sovereignty of God enough. Because guess what? Everybody heard that bad doctrine. Right? Right? Everybody got up and left with bad doctrine. Right? Right? They didn't stand at the door and say, that was wrong, he was wrong. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. You know, he, he was wrong and catching everybody. Hey, hey. No. They all left with bad doctrine. And then they graciously went up to the dude and said, hey, cool sermon, bro. <laughs> I just think that's really cool. And they're like, but, but you know what? Actually, uh, Jesus <laughs> rose from the dead. Do you know that? So uh, can you add that to the end right quick? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Hey, actually, uh, there's the Holy Spirit. They're like, you've been baptized? Baptism? I don't know. We were part of John's baptism. Be surprised, right? I love that. Can we take key? Because I, like I feel like we have good theology in our local church. Let's not be arrogant, guys. Let's not be arrogant. When we're hearing things that don't sound right, and I want to ask the Lord to give us grace on how to have deference and come alongside people and make, make sure we give, we give a lot of margin for people to experience growth. I think it's a great model here. So they go to this dude. We rebuke him in private. It's pre-cross, which is why I would say he's not a believer. Uh, he's a great Old Testament saint, but um, he still wasn't ready. He didn't understand what would happen to Messiah. He didn't really know the acts of Christ. So I'm proposing he was not born again. And that's why the Holy Spirit brought them there to make sure the brother who's getting all that doesn't stay unborn again. Um, 
Verse 27, and we can go home. And when he finished uh, to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for, pow- for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So he, man, finally God gives him the whole package, you know, and now he loaded. He's like, it's on now. So his brother's like, I was preaching crazy, you watch now. He said, this brother went up to Jews and just refuting cats in public. You know what I'm saying? It's like just going crazy, preaching the gospel. You notice again, you, you notice the church coming alongside him again, though? I love the people of God. They see this brother. It says, man, hey, okay. He's like, I want to go. I, I got to go preach the gospel. They say, okay, cool. Let me send a little letter right quick. Let me, let me affirm to the crew that you're down with us so you can have as much authority and sphere of influence that we would have if we went. Isn't that cool? I just love it. I, I mean, I mean, some of us, we could have gotten intimidated. This brother come out of nowhere like, yeah, what's up, Paul? I'm preaching too. And he's doing this thing, probably super humble, but preaching the gospel. And they're like, man, love this guy. All right, what do we need, what do, we need to do to get you up there? So they encourage him. They equip him. They send him out. He preaches the gospel. And people are growing. Identity is being established. Leaders are being formed. And everybody's in process. I want to propose that seems to be the model of 18, a great door hinge where God is starting to allow the church to begin and continue to get its identity. This dude, for some reason, man, God has seemed to allow him to be a tower of strength here, Apollos. What do we do with this? What do we take from a first century reality and to bring it down all the way to 2015? Guys, I think this issue of transition, right? This issue of of God being a gracious God and allowing us to be in process. Can I just give you a couple of things? You can write this down. Think through this in your Mac groups. When I look at this passage, I think, man, if I'm going to apply this, is that the Lord is gracious while we're in transition. That God is gracious while we are all in transition. And my prayer is that we'll be as gracious as Christ. I want to say in two ways. I want to pray that we, we, that we embrace gospel transition. That's the biggest thing. If we do that, then cultural transition will do its thing. Uh, spiritual formation will do its thing. But if we say, man, so this is what the gospel is. This is who Christ is. This is who I am. Okay, let me now ask the Lord to give me the grace to reflect who he is. If we embrace that. It's not that God don't want to change you. It's that you don't want to be changed. Is that fair? Right? We have issues in our life and people are saying, hey, you know, you, talk, you, know, you do this, you do this. You do. Well, no, no, that's just who I am. I'm asking for each one of us to embrace gospel change. So think about it in your life. What area in your life where you're just like, man, I have been, I had a hard time opening that door to Christ. I just don't want Jesus dealing with me in my selfishness. I don't want Jesus dealing with me in my time. Um, I don't want Jesus dealing with me in my vulnerability, right? Um, I, I feel like I know what the word says and I don't need nobody telling me anything. I don't want Jesus working in my life when these people want me to be in community. You think about it. What area are you short-circuiting what God is trying to do in your life to make you more like him? What I love about this passage is you have people who are broken in transition, but they were embracing the gospel. Let's be that kind of church, all right? 
Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do tithe and offering. 